After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Gentiles. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that, that, the, that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Have you ever had a time in your life where you just, you're done. <laughs> I'm done, I can't go any further. I am, I am, I'm tapped out, right? Uh, it, it can be uh, with that toddler who for the umpteenth time has pushed that bowl of cereal off the high chair. And, and that, that time is when you just, you, you're done. As a mom, young mom, you're done. You're discouraged, you're depressed. You go into a situational depression. It just, it's that one time too many that they have pushed that stinking bowl of Cheerios onto the floor and, and you're done. You're tapping out. You probably call your husband at work and say, I'm, we have spawned something from the devil, you know? <laughs> and you're just, you're just discouraged and you're down. Uh, or it's that person that you have been ministering to and witnessing to, and they mock you, and they make fun of you, or they resist, and you just say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to talk to this person ever again. Or you've been praying forever for this child, and they continue to resist and resist, and you just say, what's the use? Or you're involved in the ministry, and it doesn't have a lot of fruit happening, and you just finally say, okay, I'm done. I'm done. I think all of us have had times in our lives where you just grow spiritually discouraged, or you just grow discouraged in life. And sometimes it, it brings about depression. Situational depression can occur. You see this happen. Uh, I, I think over the last eight or nine months in ministry, I've had three different phone calls from pastors on, Monday, on Mondays, typically on Monday mornings, Monday afternoons. And on all three occasions, those pastors in tears confessed they were done. They wanted to give up. They, they just, they, they didn't, for a number of reasons. And they just, they were at the end of their rope. It, it's not working. I think God is done with me. It's, it, the church isn't growing. The church is this. I have these problems. I can't overcome this. I'm discouraged. And, and they would lay it all out. And I completely understand where they're coming from. I've been there myself. At any given time, over the years, I felt like throwing in the towel. Uh, I think we all have been there. 
At some point in our life, we, give up, we, we want to give up on our marriage. We want to give up on our jobs. We want to give up on our nation. We are just discouraged at what we see happening. And uh, we see maybe we give up. We want to give up on our church. Maybe we have given up on our church and we have left and gone somewhere else. Any number of things can occur. And it happens to all of us. It's interesting how sometimes these feelings happen maybe after a high point. Maybe after God's blessing. I mean, think about it. The mother who is now done with this child. I mean, think about that for a moment. He's blessed you with this wonderful gift of life. You know? I mean, George is so beautiful. How can you want to just say, oh, okay, I'm at, that's it, you know? But yet, it happens. It just happens. It's just we're stretched to the breaking point, and we break. You see this happen in the Bible, for example. Elijah, great story in the Bible, Elijah in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 19, he has this mountaintop, literally a mountaintop experience. He's on Mount Carmel, and he faces down all the prophets of Baal, and he calls down fire from heaven. I mean, God works through him in one of the mightiest miracles in the Old Testament, rivaling the the parting of the Red Sea, right? And he does all of this, the power of God just channels through him in such a mighty way. He destroys the prophets of Baal. The people rise up and they reject this idolatrous worship. I mean, this is better than an invitation at the Billy Graham crusade. I mean, this is phenomenal what's happening within the people of God. And the next scene is Elijah curled up underneath a tree saying, God, I'm done. Kill me. Please let me die. He is so discouraged. He's so down. I bring that up this morning because so many of us at different times can feel that way over any number of things in our lives. Depression, anxiety, stress, it all hits us. Sometimes it's situational and it's for a small season in life. Sometimes it can be chemical. Sometimes it can be you know, things like postpartum depression. Ladies, some of you have experienced how horrible that can be. Sometimes it's deeper, and it's depression that sinks in, it hooks in, and, and it's a mysterious mental illness that can drive people to even take their lives. And everything in between, you can experience that. So if you've ever been there, I think our passage is good for us this morning, especially when your discouragement is spiritually related or it's related around the things of God and God not working things the way we think it will happen. Because our passage this morning, this is where I believe Paul is. And so there's a couple of points here in these 11 verses that I want us to dwell on. First of all, the importance of a kingdom-minded community. Verse 1 starts with this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, we were in 18 last week. He was in Athens, right? Remember the whole you know, scene, the Areopagus, he speaks. There's this, again, mountaintop experience where he's presenting the gospel before all of these leaders in Athens. But of course, only a few actually believe. And we have to ask a question here. Why does Paul leave Athens and go to Corinth? Because this isn't the plan. The plan, if you go back to Acts chapter 18, 
He, you know, he is put on a boat by his friends and he is sent to Athens. And the plan is for him to stay in Athens until his friends, Timothy and Silas and the rest of the co-workers catch up with him. And then they will do ministry together. I mean, he's supposed to stay in Athens. I mean, think about it. How do you find somebody in the ancient world if they don't stick to the original plan? Right? I mean, there's no email. There's no telephone. How do they, you know, if you just up and go to another city, how do they know where you are? I'm going to ask that question when you get to heaven. Timothy, how'd you find Paul? I mean, was there a bulletin board somewhere that you just, I don't know. That's a good question. But he inextricably leaves Athens. Why? I think, it's, I think it's linked to what has happened to Paul. And we have to consider what's happened to this guy. But so far, since he's been in Greece, let's think about what has happened to him. He has been beaten and jailed in Philippi. I mean, he got beat bad, badly in, in Philippi. And he's put in jail. He, he goes to the next city, Thessalonica, and he preaches, God blesses, and then riots break out. And they try to kill him, and he has to run out of town ahead of the mob. Close one. Goes to the next city, stops in Berea, and actually three cities down the highway. So, you know, not like the next road. He gets away from the mob. Three cities later, Berea begins to do it again. God blesses. People come to Christ, the church. And the people from Thessalonica come down the road. The mob comes. They whip up the people of Berea, and there is another mob. There's a riot in the city. They are searching the city to find Paul to kill him. They can't find him, so they get some of his compatriots, and they arrest and beat them. That's how angry they are. I mean, he is not winning popularity contests, right, in these cities. It's so bad that the, the Berean Christians sneak him out of town in the middle of the night, and they put him on a ship, and they say, you got to go, and they send him to Athens. That's, that's why he went to Athens. They sent him from the northern part of Greece, Macedonia, down more towards the southern part to get him away from all of this hostility and opposition that he's experienced. And then he comes to Athens, and he faces this unparalleled level of idolatry and cultural shock. He's never been in a place like this before. And the scorn and the arrogance of Athens, it's great. And his success here, not much at all. And so he moves on. And he comes to Corinth. Why Corinth? Not completely sure, but at least in part, it's a lot like Philippi. It's just at the southern end of the, the peninsula instead of the northern end. Major city, crossroads of the Roman Empire. All the trade uh, from the west to the east that comes by ship comes through Corinth. It is a major multicultural city in the Roman Empire. A lot of parallels to Philippi. And so he comes here and he begin, thinks, I'll do ministry here. But when he comes to Corinth, we need to understand he is definitely struggling. It's not a stretch to say that Paul is very discouraged, that he is distressed. He is physically, emotionally, spiritually in distress. And the way we know this is what he himself says to the Corinthians. He reminds them a few years later when he writes back to them, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear with much what? 
trembling. Well, man, if I'd been run out of town by three mobs and been beaten and jailed and stoned and everything else, I might tremble too. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You know what these verses say here? This is a guy who is, he's at the bottom. He has, he cannot rely upon himself. He is in trouble emotionally and physically and spiritually. I think this is a portrait of a guy who needs help. And that's why these next few verses are so important, because God gives him the help. God meets Paul in his weakness, and he provides exactly what he needs. He gives him some fellow believers who become such deep, close friends that he is able to do life with them and ministry with them, and it reinvigorates Paul. In verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, Caesar, Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 2 is where God gives Paul one of the most important relationships he ever has in his Christian ministry. It is a relationship that sustains him for the next 18 years until he dies and he's executed. Aquila is a Jewish man from Pontus. This is Asia Minor. It's, uh, you, remember, you remember Paul? Paul's from Tarsus, right? That's Asia Minor, southern side. You know, I mean, here's the curve, right? And, and you know, he's right here, Tarsus, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, you know, Aquila is up above the Black Sea, just north of, of Tarsus. You know, this is a great map, isn't it? That's awesome. Awesome illustration here, right? Here, here's the Mediterranean, right? Okay, anyway, look it up later. So uh, Aquila is from Pontus. He's a Jewish business owner. He makes tents, probably out of leather, maybe goat hair, and, and he's successful. He goes to Rome at some point in his life. He, he opens up business in Rome because why not? That's where, you know, there's lots of commerce there, you know? And he goes to Rome and apparently he meets Priscilla, who's also known as Prisca, which, which tells us that she was a Roman. She was from a Roman family. There's a, a very well-known historical family in the city of Rome, Prisca. She's in that family somehow and they meet, we don't know how, they fall in love, they get married, and they are converted as Christians. They're there in Rome. You know, Claudius kicks out all the Jews. The Jews, the Orthodox Jews, around this time, 49 uh, AD, they began to get upset with the Christians in Rome, the Jewish Christians, who were beginning to multiply. The churches were starting to get established. And so the, reg, the Orthodox Jews, Judaistic Jews in Rome began to create disturbances. Claudius isn't going to have it. He just kicks all the Jews out of Rome for like five or six years. They can't live there. And so they have to migrate out. Aquila and Priscilla are caught in that historical event. They migrate to Corinth. They come to this major city, again, a great city to live in and to do business. They, through the years, will keep their home and their business in Rome. We know this because many years later, when Paul writes the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman church, 
At the end of the letter, as he's greeting different people in that Roman church, his first people that he greets is Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. When he, when he wrote the book of Romans, at that point in their life, Aquila and Priscilla were now back in Rome. So an important couple that he meets here in the, these first three verses, what you see is that they open up their home to Paul. He lives with them for 18 months. More than that, they open up their business to him. They become partners because Paul is also a tent maker. And for the next 18 months, Paul will act as a bivocational minister where he is helping to plant this church, winning people to Christ, and organizing this church in Corinth, but he doesn't take any money from the people in Corinth. Instead, he works this job with Aquila and Priscilla to provide for his physical needs. But what you see is that this community that he has and friendship with these two, it reinvigorates Paul. And so by the time Timothy and Silas catch up with him, he is aggressively, energetically engaging the Jews and the synagogues on a consistent, regular basis, proclaiming to them that Jesus is the Messiah. This relationship is important to Paul. And it energizes him and it invigorates him and it sustains him to such an extent that 18 months later, when he gets ready to leave Corinth, if you were to read on in Acts 19 and verse 18, when he gets ready to leave the city, he turns to Aquila and Priscilla and he says, I would like you to go with me. Would you go with me? And they do. And they become the basis for planting the church in Ephesus, the church that we know in the letter of Ephesians. But if you really want to see how important this couple is to Paul and, and, and what they do for him and how this friendship brings, you know, sustains him and, and reinvigorates and helps him with this fear and trembling and discouragement that he has, we really have to get to the end of his life. Because again, Paul is in a desperate situation He's in a Roman prison in the city of Rome. He's all by himself. Some of the people have abandoned him because they've turned their back on Christianity. Others have had to leave because they have ministry uh, requirements. And he's all by himself. And at the end of his life, he writes a letter to Timothy, his protege, who is now the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And in that letter, he, he writes to Timothy and he says, could, could you come and see me? Could you bring me some warm clothes? Could you bring me some scrolls? And at the end of that letter, here's what he says. Greet Prisca and Aquila. Because at that time, they're now living in Ephesus. Apparently they had multiple homes and, and business sites, Rome and Ephesus being two of them. Now, now, why do I bring this couple up? Why am I bring, you know, kind of pulling this out this morning? I'm doing so intentionally, church, because I want us to remember something important. That through the history of the church, throughout redemptive history as a whole, God's kingdom is built more through common Christians than through celebrity Christians. I want us to remember that this morning. That God builds his kingdom more through the common, ordinary, normal, believing Christian man and woman than he does the celebrity. And we need to be reminded of that, I think, because we are more and more 
almost sickeningly so, a celebrity culture. We worship celebrities. We, 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 just, we look to them for everything. We are a culture filled with people who unconsciously judge their self-worth by how much they resemble a celebrity or what a celebrity says self-worth actually is. I mean, we are a culture that looks to rock stars to, to give us an opinion about scientific matters. How dumb is that? Okay, we, we listen to an actor more than we'll listen to somebody who spent all of their life studying and researching in laboratories and who is an, a subject matter expert on something. And we'll listen to a guy who played a doctor pretending on a television series. And we'll listen to him before the actual subject matter expert. Our kids idolize celebrities. And this has crept into the church at large. We have celebrity pastors, celebrity churches, and they are given de facto authority and credibility simply because, well, they have 30,000 people coming. They must be right. Not necessarily. They have 20,000 people coming. He, he must know what he's talking about. Not necessarily. And we've adopted this in our church. It's crept into thinking at large. This celebrity worship is actually, I think, affected Christians at the very personal level. And here's how it manifests itself. Christians at the personal level now seem to think that God can't use them to do anything of real kingdom significance. You know, who does he use? He uses the, the pastor of the church, or he uses the elders of the church, or the deacons of the church, or the person who is a, a gifted, you know, theological teacher, or the extrovertish communicator who everybody enjoys. This is the kind of person who God uses. But thankfully, what we have here is we have Priscilla and Aquila. And they were just normal Christians who owned a business, who were going around their lives, but they surrendered their very normal, ordinary lives to the Lord. And in doing so, they joined a long line of believers who have found how God delights in building his kingdom more through the common than the celebrity. Because with the common, normal, ordinary people, God gets the glory. He gets the glory. Church, over the last 44 years, God has done some amazing things in this church, building the kingdom through very normal, ordinary people at Covenant Church. Now, some of you are extraordinary. You, know, you are. Some of you are extraordinary. But most of us, we're just ordinary. We're just normal, right? And some of you aren't too normal. No, no, I'm just saying. I'm kidding, right? No, you're all normal. You're saying, Jerry, you're the one that's not normal. You're right, you're right, okay. I mean, think about it. We have engineers and teachers, nurses and students, business owners and soccer moms, everything in between over the last 44 years. And, and I got news for you, he's not done with us yet. 
He's not done with us yet. And whenever we are faithful to our Lord, whenever we are grounded in the gospel and we are proclaiming it, whenever we make our careers and our lives and our everyday manners available to the kingdom, whenever we are hospitable and we open up our homes to unbelievers and believers alike who need the encouragement and the love of the gospel community, God is at work and he builds his kingdom in this. Now, that's not to imply that it's easy. There's always going to be opposition to the gospel message. You see it in verses 5 to 8. As Paul gives out the gospel, opposition grows to it. No one likes to hear that we are sinners without hope apart from the gospel. No one likes to hear that our works are insufficient to please God and that we fall short of the glory of God. No one likes to hear that our sins will separate us from God for all of eternity. No one likes to hear that there is one way to salvation and eternal life, and that comes through Jesus Christ. Those kinds of messages are offensive. The gospel message is offensive. It brings about opposition that's going to happen. So there's going to be opposition to the gospel. And there's also going to be obstacles to the gospel ministry. There will be opposition to the gospel message. There'll be obstacles to the gospel ministry. Some of those obstacles are simply because we live in a fallen world. We just live in a fallen world. Sound systems don't work. The AC goes out on Easter. Of all Sundays, Easter. You know, we live in a fallen world. Sometimes these obstacles are due to our own sinfulness. How often is, does ministry and church and our Christian life and what we're trying to do become more difficult because of our own sinfulness? We just shoot ourselves in the foot, right? We just do it because we're sinful and we shoot ourselves in the foot. But aren't you glad that God's grace is greater than our ability to shoot ourselves in the foot? <laughs> I know I am. I'd have been done a long time ago. <laughs> Sometimes these obstacles are spiritual attacks from Satan. That's something that we, like Paul, have experienced more than once here at Covenant. And sometimes these obstacles are situations that God sends our way simply to test our faith, to reveal that perhaps we are relying upon ourselves too much and our own wisdom and our own abilities, and He's sanctifying us and He's bringing us to a point where we are trusting in Him more and we're learning to rely upon Him and listen to His Holy Spirit so there's going to be oppositions to the ministry and to the gospel, and there's going to be obstacles. But whether it's oppositions to the gospel message or it's the obstacles to the gospel ministry, the very normal human response to those kinds of events and things is nervousness and anxiety and what? Fear. Fear. And that's why the final exhortation from God to Paul is so important. The encouragement that we have in this passage of God's sovereignty. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, church, did you connect some dots there? 
I mean, think about it for just a moment. How do you think the Jewish community responded to the first Christian church of Corinth opening its doors right next to the synagogue? (laughs) How do you think they liked that? How do you think they responded? How do you think they responded when the leader of the synagogue trusts in Jesus and his whole household and they get baptized and they join as founding members of the first Christian church of Corinth right next to the synagogue? How do you think those apples were taken by the synagogue? Not well at all. See, God, he provided this life-giving relationship to Paul at a difficult time in his life, but there's no Hollywood ending here to this story. Not at all. Paul's life doesn't get easier. It gets harder. It gets more difficult. He gets an all new set of obstacles. If you think about it, the opposition doesn't decrease. It actually increases. And as you read on in the passage, ultimately, once again, they try to bring him up on trial before the government authorities. No doubt as Paul is thinking, as they start this church and he sees Christmas and everything happening, Paul has got to be thinking, you know, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> I know how this movie ends, and it ends with riots. And me getting arrested and beaten and stoned and imprisoned and people trying to kill me and my insurance rates doubling or health insurance being dropped because I'm too risky and they run me out of town on I know how this ends, right? Because opposition, it's real. The obstacles, they're daunting. The need, it's great. The city is filled with people who are lost. It's immoral. Every night, a thousand prostitutes walk out of the, out of the temple of Aphrodite and flood the city offering That kind of sexual encounter to the people of the city. What a wicked, wicked place where he's doing ministry. And Paul is quite naturally afraid. He's afraid. You ever felt that kind of fear? That kind of fear when you're involved in God's kingdom work and you think to yourself, this is not going to work. I don't think this is going to happen. This is going to fail. I know I have. Sometimes that fear is rooted in idolatry, like we talked about last week. We're afraid because we don't want to look bad in the eyes of others. What does my small group think about me? I don't want to look bad as a small group leader. I don't want them to think I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't want them to think that I'm less than what I am. And so we put on a false face and a front as we lead our our small group because we're afraid of what they will think about us. We don't want to look bad. We do it in so many areas of our lives. I got news for you. As a pastor, I am constantly having to come back to the cross because of this right here. A bunch of pastors get together. None of us want to look bad in front of the other pastors. How's your church doing? How's that? How's that? You don't want to look back. So even our work in the ministry can become the basis of our identity instead of our relationship with Christ, and therefore it becomes the source of fear. 
Sometimes our fear, it's rooted in idolatry like we talked about last week, but other times the fear of failure, it's not idolatrous. It's recognizing the, the significance of the moment. It's, it's recognizing the needs of the city, the, the hardness of the lost. It seems to have gotten just so much harder to win people to Christ. It's basically, you look at the enormity of the obstacles facing us in our church. As we look at planting churches and seeing people come to Christ and making disciples, and, and it's just hard. And we go through seasons where we don't see a lot of fruit, and we wonder, is it us? Are we failures? What do we do? We're part of a network, Florida Church Planning Network, that covers four presbyteries. And we give money to it, and we're trying to plant churches. And those four presbyteries cover 42 of the Florida counties, 62% of the population of Florida are, are represented in our network. Out of those 42 counties, 21 of them don't have one single PCA church in them. That's how great the need is. We live in a city that is in the top 10 in our entire nation of unchurched or dechurched peoples. In other words, our city, we live in a triangle, Melbourne, Orlando, Daytona, our three, that, that triangle people. We live in a city that is filled with people who either never have had anything to do with Christianity and don't want anything to do with Christianity, or they have had exposure and experiences with Christianity, have walked away from church, and have decided they don't want anything else to do with it again. We're in the top 10 in our area in the entire United States. We're in a hard area. And you look at it and you go, wow, how do you crack this nut? It's fear that says, can't do it. We're not gonna be able to crack this. We're not gonna be able to overcome this obstacle. We're not gonna be successful. It's fear that says, I can't, this person is not gonna listen to me. We're not going to get it done. No. And to that fear, though, and the fear that Paul was feeling, I love verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Do you catch that? Do you know what God tells to us when we are in our moments of fear? Whatever that moment of fear is as we face the opportunity, the challenge before us, it can be a challenge at work, it can be challenges in our home as we seek to honor God and proclaim the gospel and give it to those who need it. 
and we see what's before us as a church, as we seek to see our ministry impact our community and we plant churches and we reach the lost of our community and we see how difficult it is and God says, your fear. I understand you're afraid, but you do not need to be afraid. Why? Because I am sovereign over this entire city. I am sovereign over your home and the fears that you have over your children. Your children are my children first, and I'm sovereign over them. And I am sovereign over your workplace, and I have people at your workplace who will be my sons and daughters, and I have people in your neighborhood who will be my sons and daughters, and I have people in this city who will come to me and worship me and glorify me. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is the God who is sovereign over all of salvation and all of the universe. And he tells us, when you are afraid, the antidote to your deepest fear is who I am, God says. I am God. And I'm sovereign over everything that is going on in your life. Some of you this week, you got horrible news from your doctor You're right to be afraid. Anybody in their right mind would be afraid. But to your fear, God says, I am sovereign over cancer. I am sovereign over your life. I'm the great physician. I'm sovereign over everything. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's a test, isn't it? It's always a test of our faith. Do we believe what God says about himself? Lord Jesus, help us to believe. We believe. Help us with our unbelief. We have people here this morning who have all kinds of reasons to be afraid. Some of them are health-related. Some of them are ministry-related. Some of them are fear uh, out of love for someone that they're, just, they're burdened with and they don't know where to turn. Some of them, their fear is because of their marriage or a loved one who is just taking a wrong path. There's so many things in our lives, Lord, that can induce fear. Father, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to lean into you? to know that you are sovereign over it all. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.